This paper, which is entitled Selling Patriotism, Rupert Brooke in the First World War, is essentially designed to give a little bit of background into what I like to call the Rupert Brooke cult, and just to try and understand why he was so popular with the public, as well as other soldier poets um, during, during the First World War, particularly in Britain, but also in places like the United States and continental Europe and the Dominions as well. So British culture during the First World War was comprised of sets of individual experiences, all feeding into a collective national imagery and public opinion. In the years leading up to the war, photographs of the heroes of the Crimea in 1865 and illustrations of the little wars of empire had prepared a visual dictionary linked to patriotic sacrifice. Supportive of the idea that a soldier could be a vaunted figure without dying in battle, Max Jones has illustrated how coverage of Captain Robert F. Scott's death near the South Pole also provided a precedent for the dis distant grave as a space of austere romance and pride born of mingled heroism and disaster. In the First World War, even as the sobering experience of casualties in 1914 undermined the excitement of the opening months of the conflict, and to some extent what Michael Paris has called the pleasure culture of war, public demand for linguistic and visual orientation posited greater control in the hands of both newspapers and commercial vendors. In turn, the public could assert their own definitions of patriotism through purchasing power, even if they were not able to publish their opinions in letters, articles, and poetry on the scale of the literary and political elite in London. In publishing, unprecedented circulation connected words and images as never before, as general readers could for the first time read words and then directly encounter a referenced image, to quote, quote Vanessa Schwartz. The urban crowd, otherwise known as the Society of Spectators, as Jay Winter has argued, under the pressures of war became a national culture grounded in transferable local realities expressed through interactions with the private sector. The resulting dialogue between the print worlds using both image and language to market their product and the consuming public contributed to the success of the popular myth of Rupert Brooke as the national soldier poet, an emblem of collective sacrifice. In illustrating this, the Book Monthly headlined their article of autumn 1915, Soldier Authors, the Writing Man Turned Fighting Man in Armageddon, claiming that it was, quote, high time for a literary role of honor to be inscribed. The role of honor, linked to attempts to note, sacrifice, and remember the dead, would be created at the nomination of the public, but ultimately voiced by the newspaper. The article proclaimed on behalf of, it, of the British readership, in such a list of heroes, there is one entirely worthy of standing first, and that is the late Rupert Brooke. For Brooke's publishers, Sidgwick and Jackson, from 1915 to 1918, the realization that the war was the prime factor in the popularity of England's poet-soldier, in the Westminster Gazette's phrase, meant that failure to capitalize on current demand would be a missed opportunity for profits. For the duration, multiple editions with various photographs sold at a range of prices meant greater circulation, as did allowing reprints of the soldier in as many periodicals and newspapers as possible. From the perspective of the publisher as well as consumer, the most important factor controlling accessibility to Brooks' poetry and image was availability in newspapers. Furthermore, his poem's original debut in New Numbers, which was a very, very small circulation journal, had resulted in a propitiously loose interpretation of copyright until Sidgwick filed the war sonnets in May of 1915. 
This allowed the poems to be printed over and over, a supplement to the obituaries in the weeks following Brooks' death on 23rd of April, 1915, as well as in reviews of each subsequent edition, offering lines from, and in many cases reprinting in full, The Soldier, and in in lesser volume portions of The Dead. The poems formed the context for the obituaries, which in turn informed articles and advertisements. Throughout the war, advertisements issued by Sidgwick and Jackson emphasized exemplary sales figures to the public, listing the dates of each impression of 1914 and other poems, which already totaled seven by August 1915, reaching 14 by October 1916, with 5,000 copies per run. By 1920, the volume would sell around 105,000 copies in Great Britain alone. In 1915, there was, there was some worry, mainly instigated by Brooks' literary executor and close friend Edward Marsh, who remained most concerned with maintaining literary and aesthetic standards as Brooks' accessibility increased, that the poet's reputation might be damaged by overexposure to popular culture. As Maurice Brown pointed out to Marsh when suggesting a private American edition of his memoirs of Brooke, Quote, I am not completely convinced, for the reaction is, of course, only temporary, and his reputation will inevitably find its own level, whatever any of us may say or do. However, Brooks' very commercial success, and arguably his critical reputation, relied on the mass circulation and general availability of his poetry and his myth. As a result, from the early summer of 1915, Sidgwick, Marsh, as well as Brooks' inheritors, John Drinkwater, Walt Delamere, Wilfred Gibson, and Laskalus Abercrombie, all had a vested interest in keeping Brooks' image current and making it as available as possible to the general public, while the context of the war kept the sentiments of sacrifice and the romance of the soldier poet relevant and affecting. Profit was not unconsidered, as exhibited by Abercrombie in 1915. He wrote to Edward Marsh, quote, I received from you yesterday a fortune, embodied in a form which somehow gives a sense of self-sacrificing patriotism in addition to that of immense wealth. Profits became linked to and sanctified by death, Concerns by those most directly linked to the publishing of the Brook catalog over the ramifications of mass popularity on his ultimate literary reputation were, for the most part, postponed by the exigencies of war, wartime supply and demand and the opportunity it afforded to cement a national reputation. For the British readership, whose members had increased following the liberalization of national education in the Victorian period, the visual assault of the war took place not only at the front, in a much less threatening but by no means obscure manner, the war occupied every peri- every newspaper, from articles, obituaries, and finally, in a short and simplified form, in the advertisements banking the texts. Newspaper layouts presented large amounts of information in fine type. Headlines offset important ideas and drew the reader into a particular topic. The image of the soldier became associated with the commerce of war and was used to advertise everything from cigarettes to field glasses to footwear. Newspapers also set themselves up as the public's direct link to the front. Most periodical advertisements in the Bookman's Christmas issue of 1917 trumpeted their coverage of the war. For the newspaper Saturday Westminster, the notice went, Politics, the war, literature, art, the drama, all have their space in the Saturday Westminster, the weekly magazine, review for the man who thinks. The Daily Chronicle began with the question, what is happening at the front, followed by a listing of their various war correspondents and their locations on the Western, Italian, and Russian fronts, with Frank Dilnot, whose dispatches tell what America is doing. 
Even the Times Literary Supplement, pushing itself as the leading critical literary journal, also noted it would make a wonderful wartime present. All of these newspapers and periodicals identified the pleasure culture aspect of war as their special preserve. Within this context, the name Rupert Brooke became a signifier of the serious subjects of poetry and self-sacrifice. He became part of the daily experience of the war at home, mingling the common needs of the purchasing public for hats, watches, and claret with the heightened values of heroism and war. Initially, the myriad obituaries and then articles provided the public with a foretaste of, published po of the published poetry, particularly for 1914 and other poems, linking the publishing of the poems to the national ideal as stated by Winston Churchill in the Times on 26 April, of a freely proffered sacrifice. This was accomplished through consistency of tone and sentiment, as well as by repeating lines and phrases, creating a common language for how to discuss Brooke and his poetry that persisted throughout the war in a variety of genres. The star removed Brooke from the abundant war poetry produced by the war, asserting that few lines have given stronger comfort to those whom the war has bereaved than these, quoted by the Dean of St. Paul's in his Easter sermon. And the Globe reprinted the Times' assertion that Brooke was the most promising of the young Cambridge poets. His loss was not only a private personal tragedy, it was in the opinion of the Pall Mall Gazette, quote, a real loss to the future of English literature. These assertions of Rupert Brooke's promise, and the headline of the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, linked to the consensus of praise for what the Times identified as the spirit of the martyr poet, giving the act of purchasing a volume of Brooke's poetry added solemnity. One was buying not only the poetry, but endorsing the image of a self-sacrificing soldier poet. As such, one was also making tactile those abstract emotions of grief, pride, and hope within the bounds set by the prevailing cultural authorities. As much as his name and legend became public property, advertisements reminded the reader of the tangibility of the myth, that they could actually purchase and own the symbolic volumes, and thus invest directly in the theoretical ideals of heroism and sacrifice. Even Punch pushed this idea in their review of 1914 and other poems, asserting that of this little volume which contains the last things written by Rupert Brooke, it can be said that no one who cares for the heritage of our literature should omit to read or possess it. In August 1915, Cedric and Jackson's advertisement for Rupert Brooke's 1914 and other poems included a notice that the photogravure portrait was included in the volume reminding the reader that purchase included a visual token of the handsome young national icon. The advertisement also listed, in order of descending popularity, poems by Rupert Brooke, published in its sixth impression, and poems of today, described as an anthology of contemporary poetry for schools selected by the English Association. The names of the 47 authors included, only a surname, with one exception, Meredith, Stevenson, Kipling, Davidson, Goss, Bridges, Thompson, Yates, Newbolt, Macefield, Belloc, Chesterton, and Rupert Brooke. These were older and nationally established literary figures. Brooke became the youngest addition to the list, with the preceding names helping to legitimize his fresher, potentially more tenuous re reputation. Even as periodicals constantly identified Brooke as exceptionally gifted, they also promoted the idea that he was exceptionally attractive. They did so in a way that avoided any appearance of disrespect. 
it became more appropriate for the public to linger on Brooks' quote, beautiful golden head in his athlete's body, as the Globe put it, because established figures such as Henry James and H.R. Nevinson at the nation did so as well, the latter describing how Brooks' entry into the offices of the paper in 1913 produced an effect that was almost ludicrously beautiful. Selected works, brought out first in the United States and then released for its English audience in 1917, also included a photograph from the same series as 1914 and other poems, Brooke, jacketless, slightly closer up and in half profile, alluding to the most iconic of the series of photographs. This provided a slightly more casual image of the soldier poet seen as a handsome intellectual. Brooke, who never participated in the marketing or distribution of the poems in his war volume, still had a sense of the deficiencies of the shots used for letters from America, selected and collected poems, although he thought them more typical than the one published in 1914 in other poems, and appropriate than the single aberration of the bare-shouldered photograph. He claimed that they made him look, quote, like an amateur popular preacher. Number six, from the letters, as the engraver Emery Walker labelled it, was also sold separately to the volume in April and May of 1915. However, once it was available to the public alongside the poems, request fell. This did not signal a lessening in the demand for Brooks' image, but instead confirmed its availability through multiple editions and through the newspapers, as well as the ultimate popularity of the 1914 and other poems' image. In 1919, Walker wrote to Marsh informing him that, quote, we have scarcely left off printing the portrait for the first volume of Rupert Brooke, which we call number one, since we started four years ago, never for more than a day or two. Orders have come in one on top of the other. Even specialist periodicals and newspapers took an interest in what they identified as the photograph's form, as in the case of amateur photographed and photographic news, whose photograms of the year of May 1915 included the frontispiece from 1914 and other poems. This was based on an exhibition by Cheryl Schell of the piece at the London Salon of Photography. Here was yet another portion of the public to whom Brooks' image became familiar during the war. It is interesting to note that Sedgwick and Marsh never chose a photograph of Brooke in uniform to use in the volumes or release for magazines and newspapers, but instead chose the more staged and civilian image of the poet. This was despite the fact that part of Brooke's fame rested on the success, in particular, of the poem The Soldier, at a time when the English public was especially enthralled and even fixated on the man in uniform in the role of national defender and as the embodiment of heroism. The virtue of relying on the shots from 1913 was the flexibility their association imparted to Brooke's wartime image. In death, Brooke could move from peace to war and back again, taking on various forms, appealing to those who desired, who desired nostalgia for 1914 with its famed final summer of peace, the relative optimism of the first months of the war, and the persistent need to sanctify the imagined unblemished face and body of the soldier, dead and alive. From their responses, the majority of the reading public accepted and ultimately invested in this idea as vital to Brooke, becoming an appealing and transferable figure. The public expressed its approval of the emerging myths during the war by purchasing Brooke's books and the newspapers that advertised them. They also did so by using the newspapers that had created and defined the myth of, Brooke's, of Britain's soldier poet as a forum for expressing their own thoughts on the war and its popular emblems of heroism, of which Brooke was a prominent example. Poetry offered a way to contribute personal expressions of what war sacrifice meant for the nation's readership. 
while the more influential news national newspapers primarily publish tribute poems written by established poets, smaller papers, not only in England but also in the United States, contain more liberal musings on the death of Rupert Brooke. The Westminster Gazette began the tradition of linking the obituary to public poetry in May 1915 with an unsigned poem included under the headline, Mr. Rupert Brooke, the poet and sub-lieutenant killed by sunstroke. This began the process by which numbers of the the public constructed poems honoring the soldier poet for personal remembrance, and in the case of some, for publication. Contributions arrived from a variety of sources, written by poets of differing sexes and backgrounds. The Millgate Monthly reported the publication of a volume of poems by Erskine MacDonald entitled A Crown of Amaranth, which was a collection of noble poems to the memory of the brave and gallant gentlemen who have given their lives for Great Britain. The first poem of the book was by a Miss S. Gertrude Ford, and was entitled, like many, with some variation, to the memory of Rupert Brooke. One poem in T.P.'s Weekly assumed the voice of the soldier, transforming it to the mother as an elegy on the bereaved as well as the dead, who, quote, loving the things you loved with heart aglow for country, honor, truth, traditions high, proud that you paid their price. These poems, written as a tribute by one not personally acquainted with the dead man, reveal the public's acceptance of Brooke, the soldier poet, as representative of loss and suffering within the context of, and in support, of the national community. They also show how the Brooke myth depended not only on sales to the public, but also on readership reactions in order to support and sustain interest in Brooke's poetry and his public posthumous image. They also meant that the image was re continually renewed and reinserted into the public domain by the readership itself, supplementing the efforts of publishers, periodical and ed newspaper editors, and the numerous critical champions of his work during the war. The above two poems were written by women, as many poems written about Brooke during the war were. Women in Britain, equally or perhaps even more so than soldiers on active duty, required tactile narratives and images with which to define sacrifices that might be of a mundane nature when framed by daily deprivations or long hours on the munitions line. Sacrifices became more substantial in the cases of the loss of a loved one, or, in many cases, of multiple loved ones. When Vera Britton wrote in her diary, somehow I think Rupert Brooke must have been rather like Roland, referring to her fiancé Roland Lydon, himself serving in France at the time, she expressed her investment in popular ideals of motivation and honour associated with Brooke during the war. While her experiences with Lydon were direct, based on discussions and letters, her impressions of Brooke were derived, but she found Brooke useful in mediating between impressions of the military, of which she received secondhand, and her own grief over the deaths of her fiancé, her brother, and many of her close friends. For Britain, as for many British men and women, Brooke reconciled opposing realities, peace and war, liberalism and militarism, exaltation and mourning in the home front and the front. Brooke became a point of reference for her, inspiring both poetry and a renewed passion for the national cause, particularly as it pertained to the soldiers. Within the common discourse, poetic responses to the youthful image of the soldier poet represented an attempt to move from fetishization to a respectable discourse, solemnized by both the genre and the genuine private and collective grief informing public tributes. For younger women, expressing their appreciation for the handsome young poet of England, 
Writing about Brooks' poetry, an image provided an outlet through which to participate in the war itself, if only, as Angela Woolacott has identified, on the fringes of the male domain. For these women, momentarily at least, Brooke became the representative son, husband, or lover. Other poets, male, female, and anonymous, also found in Brooke's image an embodiment of the popular ideals of ancient Greece, which became a point of inspiration and national legitimacy during the war. Along with the importance of fate, in the words of one poet for the nation, death amongst ships on Hellespont, linked the poet to, quote, the harp of Homer and the knightlier spirit of Hector. Brooke encompassed both, Hector the soldier and Homer the poet. For another poet, published in the Bookman, Brooke became the son of, quote, Lord Apollo, and hence fated for both poetry and war. In the end, death near Windy Troy meant a connection to the classics, and when coupled with death for the British cause, quote, we cannot wonder at your joy. The popular notion exhibited in and furthered by this type of verse set Brooke as, quote, England's living helicon, whose loveliness is light unto the dead, characterizing the nation, the nation's rich dead, and the poet as timeless. While many of the poems stressed the idea that the loss of the poet was irreparable, none claimed that it was unjustifiable. The cause of death was the most important method of redemption, as tribute poets viewed Brooks as, quote, a sacred courage, sacred for the cause of divine liberty, and a body spent for England, in the words of one poem written for the Oxford magazine. In the Westminster Gazette, as, quote, the youngest voice in English song, he improved upon the nation's wartime self-image by casting it in transparent verse. Another poet, for muscular opinion, summarized the idea thus, Thereby thy song, thy art, shall take a strength, a power at length, shall catch a thrill, a glow, not else can give. Brooke was a singular figure, and a worthy one for such tributes, these newspaper poets argued. Ultimately, it was the poet's contribution, his gift, that allowed the fates to lift him, quote, out of the fight, not willing that the boy should lie among the nameless dead. The act of participation in Brooke's image attempted to elevate his death and popularity above the responsibilities of man, of politics, of timing, or of accessibility. It was all the soldier poet's destiny. Of course, although it was not overtly acknowledged, this process of deification was being carried out on a commercial as well as a literary symbolic plane. These poems and their personal reinventions of Brooke's image via the medium that made him famous were all published in newspapers. They were easily obtainable, published from 1915 on, and further cemented Brooke's place in the culture of the war as it was carried out. In one poet's words, quote, his life and art were one, and now of England are apart. The accessibility of the Brooke myth had its value during the war not only domestically but internationally. Edith Wharton, Emil Verheeren, and John Macefield, to cite a few examples, promoted Brooke's image at home and abroad and in various languages. Academics in Greece worked to erect a memorial statue to the poet in Athens, and it became a point of discussion for a scholar in Sweden writing about Ibsen. However, it was the newspapers in the United States that proved most adept at working with and promoting a version of the Brook myth inherited from their British cousins. This allowed for dissemination of virtues of England in a manner not overtly provocative to political sections of the United States public opposing intervention in a European war. After 1917, discussion of Brooks' poetry and legacy emphasized compatible cultural as well as moral values and a shared heroism. 
Americans began publishing poems in diverse newspapers and journals such as the New York Times, the Minneapolis Journal, and the Dial, with titles such as In Memoriam, Rupert Brooke, and placing the ideal of the faded poet in a religious context as chosen of God. As in Britain, articles in the United States newspapers not considered to be strictly obituaries occurred simultaneous to publication of a new Brooke volume, the collected poems published by the John Lane Company in 1916, which corresponded to the British version of selected poems of 1917, also Letters from America, published with Henry James's preface in 1916, and Edward Marsh's Rupert Brooke, a memoir, published as a single tract in 1918 and as part of a complete edition of the poems in the same year, as well as the small run of Lithuania, a drama in one act released by the small firm of Stuart Kidd in Cincinnati in 1915 to coincide with the production at Chicago's Little Theatre. The latter introduced Brooke to a new facet of the public, and in reviews, this evidence of Brooks' diversity as a poet, prose writer, and playwright promoted his reputation as, in the words of the Philadelphia North American, a literary genius. In the United States, his name had become ubiquitous with the war and its voluntary sacrifices. His sonnets were read aloud at meetings and dramatic productions held to raise money for the British American Fund. In November 1917, the New York Times reported that the heroes of the present war are commemorated by ambulances in aid of the Italian army. The eclectic list of names for the ambulances included Albert of Belgium, Marshal Joffre, Edith Cavell, two for the American poet Alan Seeger, Woodrow Wilson, Abraham Lincoln, Byron, Shelley, Keats, Browning and Dante, and of course, Rupert Brooke. Critical reception and promotion of each new piece of Brooke's poetry or prose did not limit itself solely to the title discussed. Articles also used this space afforded to advertise upcoming volumes, stoking public anticipation for the new edition. In its review of Rupert Brooke, introduced by Henry James, the New York Sun began with the lines, If I Should Die, making direct reference to the soldier in 1914 and other poems. The review also alluded to Marsh's preparing a memoir and advised its readers that of the young patriot's writings there remained for publication a book on john webster and a one-act play in prose in this way the delay of edward marsh's memoir until 1918 and the anticipated appearance of john webster in 1916 meant that the volumes gained a great deal of print cover before their publications with the periodicals creating their own word of mouth in the months and years leading up to their release each volume reinforced the previous and the subsequent work's appeal, paying service to Henry James's observation about how the literary baggage associated with the dead poet would ultimately substantiate his reputation. Each piece also became a, quote, new discovery, promoted as adding depth and information, even when they failed to do either, to the inherited myth continually employed as a cultural reference point and as evidence of the superior British character in war. At least in 1915 and 1916, in its lingering neutrality, the American newspapers affected a sense of distance interrogation of what had become a popular myth in Britain. As a result, the majority of the reviews demonstrated an awareness of the existence of an English figure important to the nation's sense of self, and the almost desperate tone of many articles and reviews dealing with Brooks' poetry. Hence the Globe and Commercial Advertiser wrote, small wonder that all England was aroused to a frenzy of grief, comparable to reactions to the death of Edith Cavell. 
In the view of this writer, there was a sense of hysteria, not necessarily unfitting, in the British press and public's reaction to the death of the poet who, it was admitted, possessed a, quote, story so romantic and so distressing that one is likely to become a little sentimental about him. Such reactions were thus excusable and thus fairly repeatable in domestic articles and reviews. For example, in criticizing what she perceived in portions of Letters from America as cheap work with a calculating journalistic flavor, Elia W. Peaty of the Chicago Daily Tribune directly contradicted a line from the British newspaper The Spectator that had been widely quoted in England as a point to recommend the letters. Quote, they are wonderfully free from the defects and excesses of the modern journalist. Whether consciously or unconsciously, she, like almost all other American critics of Brooks' work, then found in the spirit of the soldier poet something redeeming. For Petey, it was the evidence found in the essay An Unusual Young Man, included in Letters from America, of the, quote, effect produced upon a peace-loving and sensitive mind by the announcement of war, that softened her overall judgment and placed it in line with what had been published so consistently in British newspapers. In dealing with Brooks' work, these critics responded first of all to what had already been written in England. Despite the speed with which Brooks' name and poetry became known in the United States, the picture was virtually complete upon arrival and ready for popular consumption. Any additions to the Brook myth were likely to work from, not against, the inherited version and avoid too overt a criticism. Despite conscious and unconscious attempts to retain a non-English perspective in their assessments of Brooks' poetry and prose, editors, critics, and journalists in the United States still resorted to certain phrases invented and employed in British obituaries and articles. Catering to a nation already accustomed to the benefits of photographic technology, as well as the virtues of physical appeal, critics reasserted testimony of Brooke as, quote, a young man of extraordinary beauty. Both the Philadelphia North American and the more expensive Woman's Monthly Vanity Fair published headshots of the poet. Despite the occasional difficulty in obtaining copies of British newspapers, a function of war in the Atlantic and the ban on some British newspapers in the United States, Critics achieved continuity with the English version of the Brook myth by reprinting portions of obituaries in the 1915 reviews of the War Sonnets. Many cited the contributions of Churchill in the form of his, quote, glowing and sincere article promoting the idea that the five sonnets have been called the finest utterances in English poetry concerning the war, and more than this, the supreme utterance of English patriotism. Redeploying Nevinson's obituary, the Globe also testified to the editor having first met Brooke and being struck by his brownie gold hair and blue eyes, which appeared, again, almost ludicrously beautiful. The New York Sun utilized Professor Gilbert Murray's widely circulated opinion about the longevity of Brooke's reputation, first published in Cambridge Magazine in 1915, quote, I cannot help thinking that Rupert Brooke will probably live in fame as an almost mythical figure. Among all who have been poets and died young, it is hard to think of one who, both in life and death, has so typified the ideal radiance of youth and poetry. This type of newspaper prose reinforced, both thematically and in some cases in direct replication, the opinions of editors and renowned figures in Britain as to the value of Brooks' reputation in the public sector. As a particularly indicative case study, the New York Times carried on the idea of intellectual life and letters in service of the European War, from 1914 onwards expressing opinions praising British war culture. 
for the periodical, Brooke became the supreme representative of, quote, all the young verse makers of England, the, quote, soldier poet of the nation. He was also a rebel, as Joyce Kilmer claimed in a review of collective poems published in the autumn of 1915. Brooke had, quote, praised ugliness in his pre-war work and in enlisting, constructing the war sonnets, and then dying, redefined the romantic legacy of rebellion inherited from Byron at Massalongai and Sir Philip Sidney at Zutphen. The sonnet The Dead, reprinted in this article in full, gained attention due to its sensuous richness of fancy, which, quote, suggested Keats, another of Brooke's national literary predecessors. Kilmer clearly identified that in England it was a matter of patriotism to buy Rupert Brooke's book and to applaud his great sacrifice. His reputation benefited from the fact that war lead led readers to greater levels of sentimentalism. Hence his death, quote, touched the hearts of men who had never before heard his name. The circulation of his picture, quote, in hundreds of newspapers also helped to make him famous. In a later article, the critic pointed out that, quote, a sensational death is sometimes a poet's passport to immediate posthumous fame, hinting that Brooke would be a less conspicuous literary figure were he still alive. All of this was presented as being perfectly legitimate in an England engrossed in what was viewed by most New York Times readers as a just war. Kilmer argued, in the United States, Brooke's, quote, chief gift was the gift of song, which could be appreciated with less emotional prejudice than in the country that was praised for its role in creating him. Hence, it was argued, the American newspapers provided a disinterested view of what in Britain would be primarily sentimental. Still agreeing with Laskalus Abercrombie's quoted assertion that the war sonnets were incomparably the finest utterance of English poetry concerning the Great War, Kilmer reached the same conclusion that it was the soldier which proved the point. The poem was also printed in full in the paper's initial article of 12 September 1915. Kilmer's conclusions hardly conflicted with inherited criticisms of Brooke from England. Indeed, in conclusion, the soldier poet had, quote, touched the hearts of all the English-speaking world and illustrated in his experience of war and his poetry the, quote, conflict and triumph and final peace within himself, the miracle fulfilled in his own soul. This was the consistent tone of the New York Times reviewers, both stated and anonymous, throughout the war when dealing with Brooke and other soldier poets, including Alan Seeger, Lionel Johnson, Francis Ledwidge, and Harold Chapin. Alongside literary copy in support of the Brooke myth, the paper follows suit with a bevy of advertisements. Indeed, in this regard, the New York Times overtook any single English newspaper. This may be as a result of the fact that the John Lane Company and Charles Scribner and Sons had a larger budget than the smaller British publishing firms Sidgwick and Jackson. Regardless, the New York Times editors made room and also made sure that these notices reached the public on a regular basis. The advertisement for the collected poems of Rupert Brooke employed, again, Gilbert Murray's mythical figure quote from Cambridge Magazine, specifically attributing it to the professor as representative of the British academic establishment. Advertisements in December promoted first the collected poems in 1915 and later Edward Marsh's memoir in 1918 as gifts, directing readers to give these books. In the periodical competing houses, such as the Houghton Mifflin Company, aided in keeping Brooke's name in the commercial sphere by publishing anthologies boasting Rupert Brooke as a contributor, alongside the likes of Rudyard Kipling and Robert Bridges, in a volume entitled A Treasury of War Poetry. The advertisement for the anthology placed British poets, together with American ones, to form, quote, the poems of the World War. 
In conclusion, throughout the war, the effort to commercially and theoretically promote Rupert Brooke arose from established figures and newspaper editors eager to act, in the words of Jan Ruger, as the war's self-acclaimed moral authorities. However, it was equally important to the dissemination of the Brook myth and to the sales of his wartime volumes that the initial decision to promote Brook as a representative figure meant that he was, from 1915, a logical and available point of reference through which to channel patriotic expression. The general public participated in the advertising of the volumes, adding their own voices, primarily in the form of tribute poetry, to those lauding Brook as an exemplary figure, in the words of the Millgate Monthly's tribute poem, The Nation's Chief Poet. The intensity and immediacy of the public's endorsement of the myth following coverage of Brooks' death could only improve sales conditions. Particularly in 1915, but continuing throughout the war, patriotism linked to purchasing translated to, into an ideal advertising situation for Sidgwick and Jackson, and the sales of the volume justified their initial flexible interpretation of the copyright. As in the United States, in Britain, Rupert Brooke provided a positive example of what English war culture considered it had gained from 1914 to 1918, as well as lost, encapsulated in the figure of the self-sacrificing soldier poet. For civilians of both nations, his poetry and life became a template, a transferable embodiment of heroism and sacrifice useful in defining both the individual and collective terms of patriotism. During the war, both poetically and morally, the idea of Rupert Brooke, created by newspapers, became widely accepted as exactly what it had initially been presented as, that is, something to aspire to.